Welcome to the Law with DK Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 47. And we're going to talk about freedom of speech this week, the First Amendment. The case is New York Times versus Sullivan. It's a famous case. It was a unanimous 1964 decision where the Supreme Court of the United States threw out a half a million dollar verdict from an Alabama state court, which was upheld by the Alabama Supreme Court against the New York Times and some others for libel, for defamation. This is the case that made the phrase actual malice an official requirement for a public official to recover on a defamation case. So it's not enough if something is untrue is said about a public official. That's not enough for defamation. The untruth or the lie, depending on how bad it is, must be broadcast or printed with actual malice. A statement is made with actual malice when it's made with knowledge that it's untrue and that it's made anyway, or with reckless disregard for whether or not it's true or not. And we'll get into what the U.S. Supreme Court means by that. And be sure to check out the AmeriChicks with Kim Monson. They are sponsoring a nuts and bolts session regarding the stock market. You can join Kim Monson and Jason McBride as they discuss some of the market's most fascinating profitable long-term trends. They'll have an event at Water's Edge Winery. Food and drink will be served, and all attendees will receive a free copy of the Stock Traders Almanac. Coming up September 16th at 6 o'clock, check out americhicks.com slash nuts and bolts for more information. As always, the Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app. Just look up Speakeasy Ideas and at speakeasyideas.com. We're on Twitter at the Law DKW and on Facebook.com slash the Law with DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're so inclined, check out the Facebook page and the Twitter. Like, review, comment, subscribe, and share. You know the drill. So who are we talking about here? Who are the named participants? First, you've got the New York Times, a prominent daily newspaper based out of New York City. They're still around, and I'm sure you are familiar with them. The other name is of Sullivan, Lester Bruce Sullivan. But he went by LB, and you always have to be kind of wary of people who go by initials. Now, this is straight from the opinion describing who we're talking about. Respondent, LB Sullivan. He's the guy who got the half a million dollar award from the Alabama jury for defamation by the New York Times and others. So he's one of three elected commissioners of the city of Montgomery, Alabama. He testified that he was commissioner of public affairs and the duties are supervision of the police department, the fire department, the department of cemetery and department of scales. That's from the opinion. It's an interesting combination. He's in charge of police, fire, cemetery, and scales. He is a man of all seasons. Sullivan sued the New York Times in an Alabama state court for libel and won the $500,000 judgment. The U.S. Supreme Court threw it out saying, among other things, and this is today's pretentious legal Latin phrase, it's inter alia, two words, I-N-T-E-R and alia, A-L-I-A. That simply means among other things. So the Supreme Court threw it out for among other things, by declaring that the First Amendment protects speech critical of public officials like L.B. Sullivan, even if the potentially defamatory statement is actually factually wrong. And before we get into the alleged 
defamation and the First Amendment analysis, let's go over the nine members of the court who were unanimous in this decision. William Brennan wrote the opinion, and he was joined by the other eight justices on the court, Chief Justice Earl Warren, Hugo Black, who also wrote a concurrence, separate concurrence. He was part of the unanimous decision, but would go even further, and we'll mention what he wrote. William O. Douglas, who joined in Black's concurrence, and he also joined in Arthur Goldberg's concurrence. They both went further than the majority did. Tom T. Clark, also a justice. John Marshall Harlan II. I've mentioned him before. He's one of my favorites. His granddad, John Marshall Harlan I, was the sole dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, which we talked about in episode seven of the law. And this Justice Harlan II, favorite quotes of all time, but I mentioned it, and that is he wrote, These decisions, talking about some particular Supreme Court decisions, give support to a current mistaken view of the Constitution and the constitutional function of this court, the U.S. Supreme Court. This view, in short, is that every major social ill in this country can find its cure in some constitutional principle and that this court should take the lead in promoting reform when other branches of government fail to act. The Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. So that's why I am a fan of John Marshall Harlan II. Also on the court and joining in the majority opinion, Potter Stewart, Byron White, and finally the junior justice with Arthur Goldberg, who also wrote separately. We'll talk about those separate concurrences. So Brennan, writing for the unanimous court, lays out the issue. We are required, he says, in this case to determine for the first time the extent to which the constitutional protections for speech and press limit a state's power to award damages in a libel action brought by a public official against critics of his official conduct. Brennan explains, writing for the court, he, Sullivan, brought this civil libel action against the New York Times Company, a New York corporation Remember, this is a corporation which ties into with Citizens United, which so many people that don't like free speech criticize now vehemently. And we discussed Citizens United in episode two. But back to Britain, New York Times, a New York corporation which publishes a daily newspaper. A jury in the circuit court of Montgomery County, Alabama, awarded Sullivan damages of $500,000. The full amount claimed against all the petitioners and the Supreme Court of Alabama affirmed. Respondent's complaint, Sullivan, alleged that he had been liable by statements in a full-page advertisement that was carried in the New York Times on March 29, 1960. And uh, I'll have a link to the actual ad in the show notes, but most of the relevant part of it will be discussed here. The advertisement began with the heading across the top, Heed Their Rising Voices. Underneath that, it read, Enter Alia, among other things. As the whole world knows by now, thousands of Southern Negro students are engaged in widespread nonviolent demonstrations in positive affirmation of the right to live in human dignity as guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It went on to charge that, and this is Brennan writing, in their efforts to uphold these guarantees, they are being met by an unprecedented wave of terror by those who would deny and negate that document Constitution, which the whole world looks upon as setting the pattern for modern freedom. The ad went on and described, among other things, inter alia, right? Certain alleged events, Brennan goes on, of the ten paragraphs of text in the advertisement, the third and a portion of the sixth were the basis of respondents, Sullivan's claim of libel. They read as follows. In Montgomery, Alabama, 
After students sang, My Country Tis of Thee on the state capitol steps, their leaders were expelled from school, and truckloads of police armed with shotguns and tear gas ringed the Alabama State College campus when the entire student body protested to state authorities by refusing to re-register. Their dining hall was padlocked in an attempt to starve them into submission. And in another paragraph, again and again, the Southern violators have answered Dr. King's peaceful protests with intimidation and violence. They have bombed his home, almost killing his wife and child. They have assaulted his person. They have arrested him seven times for speeding, loitering, and similar offenses. And now they have charged him with perjury, a felony under which they could imprison him for 10 years. So that's part of the ad. And something that jumped out at me, and probably to you as well, what in those statements refer to Sullivan? They don't mention his official position or title. They don't mention his name. How could these statements be libelous if he isn't mentioned or alluded to? And the court brings up that point. Vernon writes, Although neither of these statements mentions respondent by name, he contended that the word police in the third paragraph referred to him as the Montgomery commissioner who supervised the police department, so that he was being accused of ringing the campus with police. He further claimed that the paragraph would be read as imputing to the police, and hence to him, the padlocking of the dining hall in order to starve the students into submission. As to the sixth paragraph, he contended that since arrests are ordinarily made by the police, the statement, quote, they have arrested Dr. King seven times, end quote, would be read as referring to him. He further contended that the they who did the arresting would be equated with the they who committed the other described acts and with the, quote, Southern violators, end quote. Thus, he argued, the paragraph would be read as accusing the Montgomery police and hits him of answering Dr. King's protests with, quote, intimidation and violence, end quote, bombing his home assaulting his person, and charging him with perjury. Respondent, that's Sullivan, and six other Montgomery residents testified that they read some or all of the statements as referring to him in his capacity as commissioner. Now, just me, that connection seems a bit tenuous and to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the jury made that connection. The jury believed that that ad was defaming Sullivan. Now, the ad made incorrect assertions. That wasn't in dispute. So Brennan and the unanimous court explained, It is uncontroverted that some of the statements contained in the two paragraphs were not accurate descriptions of events which occurred in Montgomery. Although Negro students staged a demonstration on the state capitol steps, they sang the national anthem and not My Country Tis of Thee. Okay, back to me. That was That's a wrong fact. But the song they're singing isn't relevant to the libel. And, and quickly, libel means a published false statement that is damaging to a person's reputation. It's a written defamation. Slander is a spoken statement damaging the person's reputation. So the defamation covers them both. Other factually incorrect parts of the ad noted by the U.S. Supreme Court, Brennan writes, although nine students were expelled by the State Board of Education, this was not for leading the demonstration at the Capitol, like the ad said, but for demanding service at a lunch counter in the Montgomery County Courthouse on another day. Not the entire student body, but most of it had protested the expulsion, not by refusing to register, as the ad said, but by boycotting classes on a single day. Virtually all of the students did register for the ensuing semester. The campus dining hall was not padlocked on any occasion, just contrary to what the ad said, and the only students who may have been barred from eating there 
were the few who had neither signed a pre-registration application nor requested temporary meal tickets. Brennan goes on for the court, although the police were deployed near the campus in large numbers on three occasions, they did not at any time ring the campus. Okay, ringing the campus, ring does not have an objective definition. How far apart do the police need to be in that context to constitute a ring? So the ad has some things that are factually wrong, but the use of ring to me just seems to be hyperbole. I personally read almost everything as potentially hyperbolic, especially in the political realm. People exaggerate to make their point. And that's not going to change. That's just a fact. It's just like if you drop something, it's going to hit the ground. That's just the way things are. That's not going to change. We can bemoan it, but it's just a fact. So acknowledging that fact, I think, is a good way to go about living. If I drop something, I don't expect it to hover in air. If I read something on the internet, I don't expect it all to be literally true. So we're not going to change this hyperbole or even blatant misrepresentation. That's not going to change. What we can change is how we, as individuals, react, how we read it, how we listen to it, and what we do with it when we hear it or listen to it. Too many are too quick to accept claims on their face value, just like in this ad, right? Nowhere is this more evident than on the internet. We've all seen people repost or retweet or whatever articles or memes or pictures that are wrong, but they reinforce someone's existing bias, and some people are too eager to accept those things, even when maybe after just a moment, you'd realize, you know, that's probably just made up. So let's all treat everything we see with some skepticism, which to me is a major step into dealing with misinformation. Don't believe it. Another thing that was factually wrong, as Brennan points out, Dr. King had not been arrested seven times, but only four. Brennan goes on explaining Sullivan's case. On the premise that the charges in the sixth paragraph of the ad could be read as referring to him, Sullivan, respondent was allowed to prove that he had not participated in the events described. Although Dr. King's home had, in fact, been bombed twice when his wife and child were there, both of these occasions antedated preceded respondent's tenure as commissioner, and the police were not only not implicated in the bombings, but had made every effort to apprehend those who were. Three of Dr. King's four arrests took place before respondent Sullivan became commissioner, although Dr. King had, in fact, been indicted and subsequently acquitted on two counts of perjury, each of which carried a possible five-year sentence. Respondent Sullivan had nothing to do with procuring the indictment. So it seems that Sullivan is taking offense at several things that clearly don't apply to him. It's one thing if this ad said that the New York Times printed that said Sullivan did this or Sullivan was responsible for. That doesn't say that. It doesn't mention Sullivan or his position. It does say these bad things happened and some of those bad things didn't happen. They were inaccurate or just wrong. So that's the context of Sullivan's libel action. Now, the governor of Alabama and Sullivan demanded a retraction from the New York Times. Now, the New York Times ran one pertaining to the governor, but not to Sullivan, the court explained. Times did not publish a retraction in response to Sullivan's demand, but wrote Sullivan a letter stating, among other things, enter alia, that we are somewhat puzzled as to how you think the statements in any way reflect on you, and you might, if you desire, let us know in what respect you claim that the statements in the advertisements reflect on you. Brennan goes on, when asked to explain why there had been an attraction for the governor, but not for Sullivan, the secretary of the Times testified in court. We did that because we didn't want anything that was published by the Times to be a reflection on the state of Alabama. And the governor was, as far as we could see, the embodiment of the state of Alabama and the proper representative of the state. And furthermore, we had by that time learned more of the actual facts 
which the ad purported to recite. And finally, the ad did refer to the action of the state authorities and the Board of Education, presumably of which the governor is the ex officio chairman. On the other hand, the New York Times guy testified that he did not think that any of the language in there referred to Sullivan. Frankly, I don't either. But again, the jury did. And an underlying current here is that the local Montgomery, Alabama jury was prejudiced against those meddling New York Times Yankees and wanted to punish them regardless. So keep that in mind. They wanted to shut the New York Times up. They That's the undercurrent here, that the locals didn't like what the New York Times was saying, and they wanted to shut them up. They wanted to chill their speech. I think that's a reasonable conclusion. And the $500,000 award was not broken down into what they call general damages and punitive damages. They want to get too far into that, but this was a mistake by the trial court and the Alabama Supreme Court for sustaining it. And I'll just say that general or compensatory damages are for money lost. For example, if defamation cost me $10,000, cost me a job that I would have gotten $10,000 for, and the jury was convinced of that, then the jury would have a sound basis to give you $10,000. Because without that defamation, you would have gotten that job. Punitive damages are to punish the wrongdoer, not to make the victim whole. So uh, depending on different factors that we won't get get into here, punitive damages can be a lot. So the two damages are separate questions with separate reasons for them. And the jury should be told to list them separately. Like, here's the compensatory damages. Here are the punitive damages. They weren't. They just awarded total damages of $500,000, which is what Sullivan asked for. And this is where this actual malice term comes from, punitive damages, in that context. Under Alabama law and many other states, as the Supreme Court mentions in this case, actual malice is required to justify punitive damages. So the Times obviously argued that these jury verdicts abridge the freedoms of speech and of the press that are guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Quick aside here. We've talked about this on many occasions, right? But it's important. The Supreme Court has held that while the original Bill of Rights, which is more properly called a Bill of Restrictions, because it doesn't grant you any rights, it restricts the government from violating those rights. So originally written, they did not apply to the states. The Bill of Restrictions only restricted the federal government from infringing on these rights. But the 14th Amendment, according to the Supreme Court after the Civil War, incorporated, that's the magic legal word, the Bill of Rights and made at least some of them applicable to the states. The Supreme Court did, in one opinion, say all of the Bill of Rights apply to the states. They did them one at a time. And the First Amendment was one that they had incorporated at this time. And like I said, we've discussed this in a bit of other podcasts because some don't think the 14th Amendment actually meant to do that. But we'll leave that at that for now. For purposes of this case, the First Amendment had already been incorporated to apply to the states. The Alabama courts said, no, we're not violating the First Amendment as incorporated against the state of Alabama through the 14th Amendment because the Alabama courts, quote, the Alabama courts rejected petitioners' constitutional contentions, the New York Times argument, with the statements that the First Amendment and the U.S. Constitution does not protect libelous publications. The U.S. Supreme Court, however, in this case, concluded, we reversed the judgment of the $500,000 libel award. We hold that the rule of law applied by the Alabama courts is constitutionally deficient for failure to provide the safeguards for freedom of speech and of the press that are required by the First and Fourteenth Amendments in a libel action brought by a public official against critics of his official conduct. So that's it right there in a nutshell. And Sullivan made an argument based on the alleged libelous statements that we went over in this ad that they were not protected under the First Amendment because they were in an ad form. 
and not in, say, a column or a news piece. Brennan addressed that, and he said, That the Times was paid for publishing the advertisement is as immaterial in this connection as is the fact that newspapers and books are sold. Any other conclusion would discourage newspapers from carrying editorial advertisements of this type, and so might shut off an important outlet for the promulgation of information and ideas by persons who do not themselves have access to publishing facilities, who wish to exercise their freedom of speech even though they are not members of the press. That's a lot that's very important to today as well in that. So wait a minute, think about it. Buying a political ad, as was done in this case, is protected speech. So people can buy access to the means of spreading a message. They say they, they can use money to say something. So money is speech. That throws out the entire chorus of indignation that you hear now about saying we have to keep money out of politics. We can't let people spend money to get across an idea. But money isn't speech, and nobody really says that. The only people that say that are the people that want to curtail speech. They want to curtail access to speech. So despite these cries of these modern, air quote, progressives, end air quote, these anti-free speech advocates, no one believes money is speech. But money gives access to speech, which is what the Supreme Court is saying here unanimously. It's exactly what the civil rights activists did in buying this ad in this case. And to say speech is not protected because it was paid for is absurd. This ad was paid for. It's still protected. If I buy a poster board and a Sharpie for $4, I can't be denied my right to hold up that sign because I spent $4 on it. And you're saying, well, just four bucks. That is the principle. I can't, if I can't spend $500 million, where's that cutoff? Somebody could say I shouldn't be allowed to spend $4. It's a matter of degree. The principle is the same. So this whole modern, air quote, progressive, end air quote, mantra that money isn't speech is irrelevant. It's a misdirection. No one says money is speech. Money provides access to speech. And to say that you can't spend money to get your message across curtails the message you're trying to get across. In this New York Times case, which is upheld and, and revered, and I think rightly so, by free speech advocates, cuts against the idea that we should prevent people from spending money to get out a message, because that's exactly what these civil rights people did. Brennan goes on. He's addressing this Sullivan's argument that there's no right that can be protected here because they bought an ad, Brennan says. If we were to buy that, the effect would be to shackle the First Amendment in its attempt to secure the widest possible dissemination of information from diverse and antagonistic sources. To avoid placing such a handicap upon the freedoms of expression, we hold that if the allegedly libelous statements would otherwise be constitutionally protected from the present judgment, they do not forfeit that protection because they were published in the form of a paid advertisement. This is big. Paid speech is protected, just like the documentary in Citizens United, which we covered in episode two. And if an allegedly libelous statement, like in this case, is otherwise constitutionally protected, so is a partisan documentary. And another thing we hear is tied in with Citizens United, the refrain, corporations don't have rights. Well, this case right here says the New York Times does have rights. Ah, but let's be precise. New York Times as a corporate entity itself does not have rights, but the individuals who comprise the New York Times do, just like the individuals who comprise Citizens United, which was a company. Again, check out episode two for a more thorough 
analysis and discussion of Citizens United. So allegedly liable from a corporation here, New York Times, publishing this ad, allegedly libelous con- content. That's protected right here. United States Supreme Court, a whole so, in New York Times versus Sullivan. But now some people are saying a political documentary isn't. Alleged libel is okay. A political documentary isn't. It doesn't make any sense at all. There's no way to save the concept of free speech if Citizens United is overthrown. Because if Citizens United was overthrown, the New York Times would have to pay this judgment. And we'll talk, some people start saying, oh, no, no, we're going to accept, we're going to make an exception for the press. I'll talk about that in a moment. The U.S. Supreme Court here, discussing the Sullivan v. New York Times case, wrote, The question before us is whether this rule of liability, as applied to an action brought by a public official like Sullivan against critics of his official conduct, abridges the freedom of speech and of the press that is guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. So Sullivan brought this action against a corporation, the New York Times, and if individuals speaking through a corporation can be silenced, the New York Times loses this case. Here we go. Any attempt to exempt the press from other corporations is an impossibility. You cannot administer that standard. The press is exempt from being regulated from what they print and say. The press is exempt from these regulations because someone has to decide what and who is the press. A government agent has to decide that. Who qualifies? Does Breitbart qualify? Does the Daily Kos qualify? Does some guy writing a blog qualify? The First Amendment prohibition on government infringement of speech doesn't merely apply to the press. It applies to everyone. So that distinction fails. Brennan goes on. The general proposition that freedom of expression upon public questions is secured by the First Amendment has long been settled by our decisions. The constitutional safeguard, we have said, was fashioned to assure unfettered interchange of ideas for their bringing about a political and social changes desired by the people. He uses the word unfettered. Unfettered would include not banning partisan documentaries during an election, which is what the progressives want to do who want to overturn Citizens United. And here's a good quote from the opinion from Brennan. It is a prized American privilege to speak one's mind although not always with perfect good taste, on all institutions. Thus, we consider this case against the background of a profound national commitment to the principle that debate on public issues should be uninhibited, robust, and wide open, and that it may well include vehement, caustic, and sometimes unpleasantly sharp attacks on government and public officials. That's great stuff. And that background, a profound national commitment to that principle should not be disregarded. And it can't be disregarded in the name of campaign finance because money can't be taken out of politics. That notion is Pollyanna nonsense. Campaign finance laws punish the serfs like you and me. The Kochs and George Soros pay people to assist in writing these very statutes and they have an army of lawyers to get around them. You and I do not. Guess who's going to get caught? in violating these finance regulations. Not them. And if they do, they'll write a check. If we get caught for doing something we didn't even know was wrong, or it's not wrong, but something that violates a regulation, we're in trouble. We can't just write a check. So the neighborhood association who wants to send out flyers on some political issue doesn't have that lawyer available. When the rich guys get caught, it's a business expense. They write a check. We can't do that. Campaign finance is sold as a medicine to solve problems, but it's actually a poison. 
People with money will spend it to influence politics. That's a rule like gravity. It's a rule like people will exaggerate to make their point. Putting a price ceiling, which is what limiting campaign contributions is, it's putting a price ceiling. You can't spend more than this. It doesn't stop the existence of the market for that government power, for influence over the exercise of government power. It just creates a black market that only the rich and connected get to play in. It cuts us out. So the court goes on, in Sullivan's case, an erroneous statement is inevitable in free debate. So something wrong, something factually incorrect. And that it must be protected if the freedoms of expression are to have the breathing space they need to survive. I don't think that's really debatable. People are going to say something wrong. And if they're so scared of saying something wrong, they're not going to say anything. They're certainly going to be less likely to. And that's the entire point of this case. Brennan goes on for the unanimous court. Cases which impose liability for erroneous reports for saying something wrong about the political conduct of officials reflect the obsolete doctrine that the governed must not criticize their governors. The interest of the public here outweighs the interest of appellant or any other individual. The protection of the public requires not merely discussion, but information. Political conduct and views which some respectable people approve and others condemned are constantly imputed to congressmen. Errors of fact, and this is huge, this part, errors of fact, particularly in regard to a man's mental states and processes, are inevitable. Whatever is added to the field of libel, whatever somebody can be sued for, is taken from the field of free debate. So if you can be sued for it, it's not going to be said. That's the chilling effect. And this kind of, kind of a modern application of this, fake Russian memes are not the problem. People believing them are the problem. So how do we combat bad fake memes? We ignore them. How do we combat bad ideas or erroneous ideas? We combat them with good ideas or truthful ideas. We don't combat them. We shouldn't. A lot of people are, do want to combat them by making them illegal, but that isn't the way to go about it in the United States of America. We don't combat fake memes or whatever it is by establishing a U.S. Department of Truth to pass on the veracity of these ideas, not even Russian memes. How do you fight half-truths and misinformation? With the whole truth and information. Some, including a lot of people in Congress right now, would rather just ban them. Thankfully, thankfully, we do have the U.S. Constitution and the Supreme Court that got this at least right. Brennan goes on. If neither factual error nor defamatory content suffices to remove the constitutional shield from criticism of official conduct, the combination of the two elements is no less adequate. This is the lesson to be drawn from the great controversy over the Sedition Act of 1798, usually slumped together with the Alien Acts, Alien and Sedition Acts. So the Sedition Act of 1798 first crystallized a national awareness of the central meaning of the First Amendment. So again, remember, the Bill of Rights, really a bill of restrictions, restrictions on what the government can do, passed in 1789, just nine years before the Sedition Act in 1798. And this is the reason I don't believe contemporary views of historic acts like the Bill of Rights restrictions is dispositive. It's helpful, but it's not dispositive. If it was dispositive, then the Alien and Sedition Acts were constitutional and not a violation of the First Amendment. Yet we know it was. Congress passed the Sedition Acts just nine years after they passed the Bill of Rights or adopted them. They are contradictory. The fact that they are contemporaneous doesn't make them any less contradictory. Jefferson and Madison opposed the Sedition Act, but their party wasn't in power. The Federalists were in power in 1798. 
and the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798 and 1799 were written by Jefferson and Madison. These state legislatures, Virginia and Kentucky, declared the Alien and Sedition Acts unconstitutional and said those states would not enforce them. They would nullify them or they would interpose themselves between the federal government and enforcing those unconstitutional acts. Interpose just means intervene between the parties. I think a future podcast should cover the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, and I will do that because they're huge and they aren't really taught in public school. So back to Sullivan talking about the Sedition Acts. So the Sedition Acts made it a crime punishable by a $5,000 fine and five years in prison if any person shall write, print, utter, or publish any false scandalous and malicious writing or writings against the government of the United States or either house of the Congress or the president with intent to defame or to bring them or either of them into contempt or disrepute or to excite against them or either or any of them the hatred of the good people of the United States. Brennan goes on, Madison had said, if we advert to the nature of Republican government, we shall find that the censorial power, the power to censor, is in the people over the government and not the government over the people. Heck yeah, Madison. So Sullivan as a government agent doesn't get to censor the press. That's the conclusion. And back to the Alien and Sedition Acts. Brennan wrote, Jefferson as president pardoned those who had been convicted and sentenced under the act and remitted their fine, stating, this is Jefferson, I discharged every person under punishment or prosecution under the sedition law because I considered, and now considered, that law to be a nullity, as absolute and as palpable as if Congress had ordered us to fall down and worship a golden image. That's beautiful language. How many such congressional orders exist today? Countless ones. Go back and check out episode five of the law where we discussed Wickard v. Filburn. We need people like Jefferson and Madison and others who are willing to stand up and say, you got, that's not a legitimate use of your power and we're going to ignore it. So Brennan goes on in this case, in this 1964 case, a rule compelling the critic of official conduct, like the people who paid for this ad, to guarantee the truth of all of his factual assertions and to do so in pain of libel judgments, virtually unlimited in amount, leads to a comparable self-censorship. Allowance of the defense of truth with the burden of proving it on the defendant does not mean that only false speech will be deterred. Under such a rule, would-be critics of official conduct, like the people who put out this ad, may be deterred from voicing their criticism, even though it is believed to be true, and even though it is in fact true, because of doubt whether it can be proved in court or fear of the expense of having to do so. That's legitimate chilling. It really is. I don't see any way around that. So the court is right in this conclusion. Brennan goes on for the unanimous court. The constitutional guarantees require, we think, a federal rule that prohibits a public official from recovering damages for a defamatory falsehood relating to his official conduct, unless he proves that the statement was made with actual malice. There we go. That is, Brennan says, with knowledge that it was false or with reckless disregard of whether it was false or not. So that's where we get it. And this actual malice standard comes from the common law. The court here unanimously in Sullivan, 1964, makes the argument that the actual malice standard existed in common law for punitive damages and isn't something they just created. The court then goes on to discuss how often government officials have immunity from their statements and that the same immunity should apply to individuals. Brennan explains, as Madison said, the censorial power is in the people over the government and not the government over the people. It would give public servants an unjustified preference over the public they serve 
if critics of official conduct did not have a fair equivalent of the immunity granted the officials themselves. We conclude that such a privilege is required by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Regarding the Times in this particular case, Brennan wrote, the evidence against the Times supports at most a finding of negligence in failing to discover the misstatements and is constitutionally insufficient to show the recklessness that is required for a finding of actual malice. We also think the evidence was constitutionally defective in another respect. It was incapable of supporting the jury's finding that the allegedly libelous statements were made of and concerning respondent Sullivan. And that's what I'm saying. That's this undercurrent that this Alabama jury just wanted to stick it to the New York Times. They wanted to shut them up. And that's what the Supreme Court says you cannot do. So they're not going to allow it. Or the Constitution doesn't allow it. So in sum, the Supreme Court in this case unanimously, in New York Times versus Sullivan, says that public officials cannot prevail on a defamation action unless the statements were made with actual malice. This is to prevent the chilling of political speech by making people too scared of getting something a little bit wrong and thereby opening themselves up to a financial judgment against them or even having to defend it in court. Even if they're right and they win, they still have to spend a lot of money to defend it. That's the chilling effect. Now, Justice Hugo Black, joined by Douglas in a concurrence, would have gone further. Black, joined by Douglas, wouldn't allow a public official to recover for defamation even if actual malice existed. This is what he wrote in his separate concurrence, so this is not the opinion of the court. In my opinion, Black wrote, the federal constitution has dealt with this deadly danger to the press in the only way possible without leaving the free press open to destruction. By granting the press an absolute immunity for criticism of the way public officials do their public duty. We would, I think, more faithfully interpret the First Amendment by holding that, at the very least, it leaves the people and the press free to criticize officials and discuss public affairs with impunity. An unconditional right to say what one pleases about public affairs is what I consider to be the minimum guarantee of the First Amendment. Then Arthur Goldberg, another justice also joined by Douglas, also wrote basically the same thing in a separate concurrence. Goldberg wrote, In my view, the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution afford to the citizen and to the press an absolute unconditional privilege to criticize official conduct despite the harm which may flow from excesses and abuses. Then Goldberg clarifies, this is not to say that the Constitution protects defamatory statements directed against the private conduct of a public official or a private citizen. So a private person doing something private as opposed to a public official doing something public can still recover for defamation under Goldberg's view, which I agree with, uh, and, and Black. The Supreme Court didn't go far enough in New York Times versus Sullivan, but they went pretty far. The Supreme Court in a unanimous opinion, says public officials cannot chill speech by recovering for defamation from a corporation or an individual, and in this case it was the New York Times, unless actual malice can be shown by the person or entity making or publishing the statement. Three justices would have gone further. Black, Douglas, and Goldberg would have provided an absolute immunity for criticism of public officials, regardless of the veracity of the facts included in that criticism. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, episode 47, New York Times versus Sullivan. As always, we are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Twitter at TheLawDKW and Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. Email Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for additional information and for information about speaking engagements. Until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. Dangerously.